Here at Embassy Church, we have given most of our time on Sunday mornings to what is called preaching. It's what we're taking part in right now. I think that if I were to guess around the room, you all have different ideas of what good preaching is, what bad preaching is, whether or not we should have it longer, shorter, etc. A variety of ideas about preaching. There's a lot that could be said on it. This message today is not primarily about preaching, but as I went through the text of Psalm 132, as we continue our study through the Psalms of Ascent, I want to just introduce this psalm by saying preaching at its heart, one of the metaphors described of the preacher is what's called the herald. I wonder if you think about what's going on on Sundays as heralding announcements, as somebody declaring some things to be true, and those having world-changing sort of ramifications. Or do you merely see preaching as a Bible teacher? Like, all I want is more Bible teaching. I want to learn Hebrew and Greek slowly and surely as I come to church on Sundays. I want to learn more about the Bible. See, I think all good preaching has to have some teaching in it, but it is not merely Bible teaching. That's like Sunday school classes, that's seminary classes, that's, that's not preaching. See, at the heart and core of preaching, there's this metaphor, a herald who's going to make some announcements and some declarations about God and about you and about the whole world. And as he makes those announcements, they have world-changing and life-changing ramifications. That, that's what we're giving our task to this morning. And we, we give the biggest portion of our service to this because we, we figure this is one of the most important things for you as you think through how to live in the world, how to care for your family, how to love the people around you to do your job better, is that if you could kind of get the world's way of working that God's designed and, and have that mesh with the way you're living, it will make all the difference. So I'm a herald. I'm not just a life coach. I'm not a Bible teacher merely. I'm not a life coach. Yes, we make applications. And it has life-changing ramifications, and so we want to apply God's Word, especially in our discipling relationships. But one of the things I'd love for us to see this pulpit, the, the gathering on Sunday mornings, as a continual heralding and declaring of certain truths about God, about us, and about the world. And if you ever start attending Embassy Church, and whether it's me or somebody else, because I'm gone or who knows what, 20, 30 years from now, some of you kids, listen up. Maybe you'll be here at Embassy Church, Lord willing. And you'll need to know, are we going to hire a new pastor because Pastor Phil's old and he's retired and we need to find a good preacher? Ask yourself, is he heralding? Or is he just a life coach, giving me a few tips on how to live a little bit better this week? I think that you can live a little bit better this week, not just from life coach tips, but by somebody heralding truth. So with that in mind, I want us to look at Psalm 132. I see two awesome truths that we should have heralded today. They come in the two halves of this psalm. We're going to take them one at a time because this psalm is broken into two parts. We've been studying for the last several weeks the Psalms of Ascent. There's four, 15 of them. Psalm 120 to 134, and we're almost done. We're on our 13th of the 15 messages. As we look at this one, you'll notice quickly, compared to all the others, the first thing that jumps out is, whoa, it's longer. 
On page 519 in these black Bibles around you, you'll see the, the big number 132. That's the psalm heading. And then you'll see the smaller verses. There's 18 verses. It's, it's double. It's triple longer than all the other ones. You've noticed last week we, we had three short verses in Psalm 131, and that was more typical of a shorter length in these Psalms of Ascent. They were to be memorized. They were to be repeated as they were ascending. That's why they're called Psalms of Ascent. The, the word there is literally a song of degrees or steps as they made their journey up, ascended up from the valleys to the top of Jerusalem, the mountains, and came to worship during festival times. They're ascending up and they're repeating and reciting these songs. If you want to modernize it, think of it as their playlist on their iPod shuffle as they make their car trips to some grand conference as they're about to worship God together every year. That's what's going on here with these psalms. Here we find the longest one, and it's all about David. It doesn't have the subscription of David, but as you'll see in verse 1, as you'll see in verse 10, and then again in verse 17, David, David, David. He is at the beginning, he is at the middle, and he is at the end. This is all a psalm about David. Verse 10 is actually the middle point of the psalm. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The first half from verses 1 through 9 is going to have one theme, and then the second half, verses 11 through 18, a second theme, and they're actually going to parallel each other perfectly. Meaning what's said in the first half is going to be repeated in the second half, but not from David's perspective, but from God's perspective. You can even see it in your English Bibles when we go through it, that the language matches up along parallel lines. So the first half and second half, if you were to take them, not like this, but like this, next to each other, you'd see how they line up perfectly. That's Hebrew parallelism. It's very common in all of Hebrew poetry. So let's look first at verses 1 through 9, our first part. And I want to take a moment to just say, before you read it, what's going on here, if we were to summarize it, is, is a passionate commitment for the presence of God. So what's going on in the first part of this psalm is a passionate commitment for the presence of God. I'm going to read it, and I want to declare to you the truth that I see in this psalm. Verse 1, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. There's our first part. I think it's pretty clear when you just read over it and see the flow here. You have first one, remember David and all the hardships he endured. The word hardship is actually a humbling of himself. It's the same word that's used in Numbers and Leviticus to talk about fasting and self-afflicting behavior, denying oneself, which makes sense with verse 2. Notice the way it says, remember the hardship, remember the self-denying of David, if you wanted to put that language in it. And then look what verse 2 says, how he swore to the Lord and vowed. Well, what did he vow? Verses 3, 4, and 5. He swore and vowed, and, and by the way, I don't believe there's an actual literal vow that's being referred to here. I think this is just hyperbole. It's poetic exaggeration. I think what's happening here is you're seeing a passionate commitment 
to the presence of the Lord. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. David says, I will not enter my house. I will not give into my bed. Those are repeated phrases to say, I'm, I'm not going to sleep or slumber. I'm not going to lay down and be comfortable until I find a place for the Lord. Find a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Then you see in verses 6 and 7, behold, we heard of it. And then this is the point where you're like, what's it? What did they hear of in Ephrathath? And where is Ephrathath? Ephrathath is just another name. It's a nickname for Bethlehem. It's more than likely David saying, I heard when I was a young boy in Bethlehem about this thing, this it. And then we found it in Jr., which is also a nickname for Kirath-Jerim, which we heard of in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But you know what the it is if you just keep reading. You keep reading in verse 8, and it says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. That's the it. The ark of the covenant, the dwelling place of God, the footstool of God. See that in verse 7, the footstool? The ark was also called the footstool of God. Now, friends, I think in order for us to understand all of this, we need to know a few things. One is that David is passionate here. That's why I said that this is about the passionate commitment to the presence of God. All through the Psalms, we see his passion for God's presence. Psalm 27, 4, he says, One thing I asked. If you could ask God for one thing, what would it be? David says, That I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. That's what you were thinking too, right? One thing to be in the presence of God. For one day in your courts is a thousand better than a thousand elsewhere. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So we need to see from this first half that there's a passionate commitment to the presence of God. But second thing you need to see in this first half is that the ark is the presence of God. The ark is the representation. It is his footstool. He is sitting enthroned in heaven, God, but his feet, his footstool, where he's plopped his feet, is in the ark of the covenant. This is all poetic, kind of metaphorical language to help you understand a bigger theme about the presence of God that's taught all through the Bible. Some of you may not understand what all of this is about, so let's just take a few steps back. The presence of God is one of the most important themes that you'll ever hear taught from the Bible. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2 where God has created a world, and that world, earth, is the place where his presence dwells in all of the earth. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's all very good. And man and God can dwell in harmony together and have their presence commingle without any interruption. What a wonderful, beautiful way to start the Bible out. It gets bad really quick, though. In Genesis chapter 3, the presence and fellowship of God and man is broken and fractured, and they are no more. Because of sin, because Adam and Eve and the sin in the garden, they chose to want to be like God. They didn't want to just be with God. They wanted to be God. And that sin in Genesis 3 banished them from the presence of God. They were kicked out of the garden, and now they were no longer in fellowship. So what you once saw as beautiful, all of heaven and earth commingling together without any interruption, gets fractured apart. And it remains this way for the most of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 until you start getting small glimpses through the life of Moses, through the teachings of Moses, and then eventually the teachings and instructions to build an ark and a temple. 
So what you have here is not heaven and earth coming back together fully and finally in the temple, but like a small piece of heaven on earth, like the example I just explained, the footstool. So it's like God is in heaven, God's space where he dwells, where his existence and his holiness is. It's separated from the goodness of creation, and therefore creation is now cursed and marred because it doesn't have the presence and goodness of God. But all through the Bible, there's these little moments where you get a little touch, a little glimpse of God's space here on earth. And here in the ark is the most hot of his holy spaces on earth. It's in the tent of the meeting. It's in the the tabernacle. It's put inside of this tent that God gave instructions that it would be under behind the curtain. It's in the the back room where all the, the business gets done. And in that back room behind the curtain is this ark. It's ark just as a word for chest. So imagine a wooden chest, and it's overlaid with gold. And then there's these these, uh, angelic figures, these seraphims that are sitting above it. And then inside of it are the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and these few relics that are put inside. What you need to know about this ark is that it is the hot spot of God's holiness, the presence of God. So here's declaration number one from part one of this message. The presence of God is here on earth. Now, anytime you hear a declaration like this, you need to know that there's a backstory. Because if I say, tomorrow it's going to rain, well, if you were planning to be outside, that'd be bad news. But if you're in California or somewhere where there's great drought and there's not been rain for a long, long time, then you're celebrating tomorrow it is going to rain. Do you see how the backstory behind a declaration is kind of all the importance? So if I declare the presence of God is here on earth, is that good news or is that bad news? Is that like, oh man, why is he here on earth? Like rain, I was hoping to go outside. Or is it like, We have had a drought of God's presence, and praise God, oh, this is fantastic news. The presence of God is here on earth. To understand this, you need to realize that it's actually both. You understand the presence of God, you need to realize that like the blazing center of the sun, the hot spot of God's holiness is in such a way that if you're on earth and the earth is full of incorrupt ungodly, sinful people, that would be bad news for you to touch or get near or close to the presence of God. That's one part of the backstory. Part of the backstory, we hear the presence of God is here on earth and that you can have it and be near it. Well, you don't want to get too close in the same way that you don't want to look at the sun too much and you're thousands upon thousands of miles away from the sun. In the same way that you don't want to get in a spaceship and fly into the sun, in the same way you, as a sinful creature, should not get this close to the holiness of God's presence. So it's both bad news, but then it's also good news. Because God has provided instructions and a way for His holy hot spot to be cared for and dealt with and approached where you can get close. Think of it like if it was the hot burning sun that you're given this special spacesuit and you can get really, really close to it without getting burned yourself. Now that would be cool. And the good news behind this backstory 
is that God did provide just those instructions. And so this is what we find in Israel's history. Is we, throughout the history of Israel, you have God giving his people instructions for how to care for this ark, this chest, which had the hot spot of his holy presence. And if you wanted to worship and have forgiveness of sins and, and have him experience the goodness of his presence, just in the same way, isn't the sun good? Like it gives us warmth. I like the warmth. Who wants to go back to winter in Chicago? No, we, we enjoy the warmth of the sun. We enjoy the nutrients that our skin, the vitamin D we get. We enjoy the, the wonderful life it brings as it brings life to the plants and the flowers. So the sun is good. And in the same way, God in his presence is so extremely good that he cannot dwell with evil. That's the best way to understand it. It's not that we can't get near God's presence because he's so bad and terrifying. It's because we're so bad and he's so incredibly good. So that's what God is like in terms of his holy, sun-like, hot presence. And you just can't get too close. So there were special instructions about how this ark was going to be dealt with. And what we find in our psalm, Psalm 132, this is almost across the board. No one's really arguing this. This isn't an issue of debate and scholarship. Is that Psalm 132 is a celebration of the ark that was lost because of their misuse of it and then regained And what you see is David's passionate commitment to make sure he gets the ark back. So hopefully that helps you understand Psalm 132 a little bit better, that David made a vow. He promised. He says, I want to make sure I don't sleep. And I find a place for the presence of God, the ark of God. And then he says, look, we found it in the fields of J.R. That's verse 6 of our psalm. And what he's referring to is 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is what was read to us earlier in the service, in our Old Testament scripture reading. God's people thought that they could use the ark like a rabbit's foot. Like it would just be this special good luck charm that wherever they went, they would win victories over all their enemies and just be like, well, we've got the ark. And because of their pride and their arrogance, they lost the ark and were defeated by the Philistines. The Philistines took the ark from them. And this is what's being referred to here in our psalm, that they lost it. And that's why David so passionately wants to get it back when he becomes king in 2 Samuel. And what we see is both the goodness and the badness of the ark throughout this time that it's wandering around the Philistines. 1 Samuel's stories are really interesting. It's it's great stories even for the kids to read. When the Philistines put the ark next to Dagon, their fish man god, they wake up the next morning and Dagon is Dagon dead. He like falls over and his head gets chopped off. So you put the presence next to this statue, and in the middle of the night, they kind of try and fix it, and the next day, the same thing happens. They're like, well, we got to get rid of this ark. It is, it is too hot for us. We can't put it next to our other false gods. Then they send it somewhere else, and everybody gets tumors. They send it somewhere else, and then these people are like, well, let's try and open it. Everybody dies. Like, this is some intense stuff going on, and this is what I'm telling you about the bad backstory of the ark and the holy presence of God. And so where they find it here, this, this phrase, the fields of J.R., literally when you go to Kiriath-Jerim, the, the synonym name for it, it's basically the backwoods. It's found out in the middle of nowhere because what they did was like, look, we're just, we're done with the ark. All the Philistines and all the people were like, look, let's put it on a cart. Let's put some horses on it and just say, go, giddy up horses, giddy up ox, and just get away from us. And it just was meandering and wandering in the middle of nowhere. 
So they find it in the middle of nowhere. That's what verse 6 is referring to. They found it in the fields of Jair. The problem was is that they didn't bring the Levites who should have carried it. They didn't carry it with the poles. And then they had it on a cart that they found it on. And then when they, when they started trying to bring it back, one of the ox stumble. And then Uzzah reaches his hand out to try to, oh, I don't want to let the ark fall on the ground. It's so holy and good. It seems like the right thing to do. But what Uzzah failed to understand was that he thought he was more clean than the dirt that the ark was about to fall on, which was just not true. So as soon as he touches the ark, which was a clear command that he should never touch the ark of God, it's too hot. He had no sacrifices. He didn't do it the right way. He wasn't a Levite. There's just no sense of which Uzzah should have said, oh, let me help the ark. No, you stay away, Uzzah. It's too hot for you. When you encounter the presence of God in an unclean state, you are like a car running into a brick wall. You see, one of the phrases for the dwelling place of God in the ark was called the glory of God. You guys heard that phrase before? And the glory of the Lord came down upon the ark. It's all like Bible language. It's sometimes you're like, yeah, okay. Well, what does that mean? The Hebrew word glory means weight, which is why I said it's like a brick wall. Like imagine the strength of a million-ton concrete wall, and then you've got this car running into it. The car changes. The car gets transformed. The weight of the wall is of greater value than the weight of the car. So don't run into brick walls, friends. That's the lesson that you can take home for little life lessons. But the declaration truth for you to take home is that the presence of God is hot. And don't touch it. Don't get near it unless you do it the right way. Unless you have been cleansed of your uncleanliness. So how do we encounter the presence of God in this unclean state? It comes clear when you read through that 2 Samuel story. David realizes we should have made a sacrifice. And so when he goes back the second time, he makes an animal sacrifice. He brings the Levites. They carry it on its poles. And eventually they bring it back to Jerusalem. And everybody is celebrating. David is flipping out celebrating. Like he's dancing like a wild man, so much so that his wife is like, you are embarrassing me, or something like to that effect, because she is very upset with David for his silly dancing. David is just overwhelmed with joy by the presence of God being returned into the people of Israel's capital, Jerusalem. So I think we've got to ask ourselves a few questions here. Is there any sense to which you could say, I am passionate or desire to be near the presence of God at all? If so, my hope would be yes, but that you would understand how to approach the ark in the appropriate manner, or the presence of God, that is. Because the way the Old Testament story works here is that as we look through these themes of God's mighty presence, see that in verse 8? Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Notice, too, the phrase in verse 2, the, the mighty one of Jacob that's repeated in verse 5, the dwelling place for the mighty one. Like All through this first half, God's presence and his power and his might are wrapped up with, in one another. How in the world will you and I be able to get near the presence of God? 
Jeremiah chapter 3, at the tail end of the Old Testament story, is going to tell us that there is going to come a day when God's people will no longer say, where is the ark of the covenant of the Lord? For they will not bring it to mind, and they will not remember it, and they will not miss it. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and the nations will gather into the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they will have no more stubbornness of their evil hearts. The tail end of the Old Testament story is a promise that there will be a day when nobody's going to care about the ark anymore. And instead, there's going to be a throne, and the throne is going to have all of the nations come into it. What in the world is going on here? If you understand your Bible, you understand that the Old Testament has a lot of questions that the New Testament answers. So the question is, how in the world are we going to get into the presence of God? How is this prophecy going to be fulfilled when no one's going to care about the ark of God's presence anymore, when that was the centerpiece of all of Jewish worship for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years? That sounds crazy talk. Get into the mind of a Jewish person and say the ark of the covenant will not be remembered or missed anymore? Why? Because it will be replaced to its true and final form in the person of Jesus Christ. Declaration truth number one is that the presence of the Lord is near. It's here on earth in Jesus Christ. That's what I come here to declare to all of you today. Do you want to know the presence of God? Do you want to be near it? Do you want to experience its warmth and its goodness and its life? It can be found. It's not off in some backwoods. It's not off in the highest heavens so far away. We could never touch it. It came down onto the earth in the person and form of a human baby named Jesus. When the New Testament story starts, our New Testament reading starts telling us in Luke and in Matthew and in John, Jesus is the one who comes through the throne line of David. He is the temple and the tabernacle. In John chapter 1, it's going to say Jesus is the God-man who is flesh on the earth, and he is dwelling, and the word there is tabernacling, templing. He's arcing, if you want to put it that way. He is the ark on earth in human form. That's John chapter 1. Jesus is our temple tabernacle, but he is the human form. Do you remember why Jesus died? I've been studying through the Gospels a lot the last few years, just both in preparation for sermons in our Luke series a couple years ago, but also just on my own time. I've been asking myself, what's kind of the center point of the story of Jesus? It's why Jesus died. And I'm convinced it's the temple act when Jesus comes into the temple and he throws over the tables and he totally disrupts the whole Jewish customs and cultures. And he says, I am going to tear down this temple and in three days rise it again. Raise the temple again. And we know, we know he wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about his own body. Jesus' body, he understood, both in John 1 and throughout his life, declaring and telling people, I am the very near presence and hot holiness of God in human form. Do you ever notice what happened to people that were evil or unclean that got close to Jesus? They were like a car running into a brick wall. They changed. The weight and the glory of Jesus' holiness as they ran into Jesus. They were transformed. Evil spirits fled. 
evil spirits were like, get, get away from me. Do you remember Peter when he realized at the first moment of the gospel stories that Jesus wasn't just a man, but he was God? He says, depart from me, for I am an evil man, because he knew that the holiness of God cannot coexist with evil sinful men. Are you starting to understand a little bit more of what the gospel stories are trying to tell you? This heaven and earth fracture is coming together because of the initiation of God to bring heaven down on earth through the person of Jesus Christ. God's presence is not just on earth for 33 years. See, that would be good news. Like if we stopped right now and just said, amen, let's sing a song, let's take communion, and let's be done. Go home. Like all that I've just said, I hope some of you, or at least um, some of you, you know, or all of you, are following and being like, that sounds fantastic. That the whole Bible is telling us this story about how heaven and earth were once one, how God and man were both together. It got fractured, but God's decided to take the initiative that through the Old Testament temple and then finally through Jesus to bring earth and heaven back together again. That's great. But do you realize that there's another part of this story that involves you today, right now, where this declarative truth can give you life-transforming purpose and meaning right now? Here's the next part to add to the sentence. I'm declaring this morning and announcing to you all that God's holy, hot presence is here on earth through Jesus Christ and in you by the Holy Spirit. That's fantastically good news. And this comes in the most strange passage, I think, in all of the Gospels in John. John's Gospel, Jesus tells all his disciples, he says, I'm going to leave. And at that moment, you're like, oh, Jesus, no, we liked you. Stick around. And then he says this, this is the strange thing, and it's better that I leave. And those are like, wait up, it's better that you leave, Jesus? It seemed really good thing that you had going here. You should stay. Stay, Jesus. It'll be so much better because I'm going to send a helper. The Holy Spirit will be in you. You see what's happening here? God's holy, hot presence goes inside of you. It's really, really near if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The presence of God that was once commingling, separated, temple, Jesus, Holy Spirit brings it in your heart and life. For all who would repent of their sin, trust in Jesus and say, He is my Lord and Savior. Do you understand why the New Testament says that you should fight sin? Because you are the temple of God. You are the abode, the dwelling place. There's no more temple anymore. Your your very body is the place where the Holy Spirit, where God's presence dwells. So if God's presence is in you, how can sin also dwell in you? That that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense if you understand the Bible. So that's why you get these exhortations not to keep the rules, boys and girls, make sure you don't sin. No, it's declarative truths. God's presence comes in people. So therefore, don't you understand these two things don't coexist? Start living like the one is true. Don't commit sexual immoral acts. Your body is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. That's the letter to the Corinthians. 
One of my friends that I was sharing the gospel with while I lived in Washington, D.C., we would meet up for lunch every single week. I saw him go from, I have no idea what the Bible's about, no understanding of the gospel, to saying, I wholeheartedly embrace Jesus Christ for my life and my everything. It was fantastically wonderful, good story, just how he got converted. But today's story, I want to tell you, is that this young man, two, three months later, we're still meeting, still discipling him, still teaching him. And as we were meeting, one day he said, Phil, i got to talk to you about something. I'm, I'm like a mess right now. I don't understand. I'm like literally sick. I'm just sick in my soul. Like the, he says, there's this inner turmoil within me, but like I'm literally sick. I, I couldn't work all of last week. That's why we couldn't meet last week. He's just going on and explaining this terrible consequence of God's Holy Spirit coming in his heart because he said, I keep sinning. I know I'm sinning. I know it's because of my sin that I'm getting sick. Do you realize the Bible explains to us that some of the reason why some of us experience physical illness, not all of them, so please don't say, well, I'm sick because I'm a sinner this way. But every once in a while, it's definitely true. James chapter 5 says the reason why some of you are sick is because you need to confess your sin to your elders and have them pray over you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says some of the reason why some of you are sick and have died in your church is because you have sin in the camp of the church. What I got to see was an expression of that in Washington, D.C. As I sat across this young man, he's like, I'm living in sin right now, but I've just received the Holy Spirit in my heart, and they can't coexist. Those weren't the words he used, by the way. Like, he didn't know theology or the Bible and know how to explain that, yeah, sin and holiness, and they just don't coexist. All he was showing me was, Phil, all I know is that everything within me is fighting against this sin, and it is ripping me apart. I can't even work. I can't even do anything. Yeah, I'm like, that's actually the way it should be. I had this strange smirk on my face. And sin cannot coexist with the holy, hot presence of God. Now, that's you as an individual. Do you realize that the Bible then says what happens when a collective group of temples, and this is the First Peter chapter 2 language, are each like little bricks, and they come and they gather together weekly for church. Do you realize that the church is the new temple, the new presence of God? It's the body of Christ. This room, this gathering, the, the fellow believers in Jesus Christ are now, we collectively, are the presence of God's holiness. I just wanted to get that out there because I think if you could start understanding this, you will start thinking about church a whole lot differently. And you will understand why at Embassy Church, we start with this one purpose statement. We exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose vision statement. Now, there's more to it by making disciples of all nations, but it begins there. The reason we exist is for the presence and the glory, the kabod, the holy glory of God to be manifest here in the northwest Chicago suburbs. That the presence of God can be felt here on earth now, not just in your individual life, but when we collectively come together, it can be brighter and more wonderful and more exciting and more life-giving and hope-breathing to the rest of the world around us. 
Do you understand the implications for why you would need to do church membership? Because you don't want to let people just continue living in sin all the days of their life while they say that they're a member of the church? Why church discipline matters now? Do you understand why we have a covenant? Because we are passionately committed to the presence of God here in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Therefore, we're covenanting together like David vows and says, look, we're going to make sure we do everything we possibly, humanly speaking, can to protect the presence of God on the earth. Because it is special and it is wonderful and it gives life and hope. This means that we're passionately committed to the cross because we know that we need a sacrifice to get close to God's holy presence. I should be struck down dead every time I talk about God from this pulpit and make these declarations, but because of the blood of Jesus, we can come near and have the fellowship of God's presence in this room together. Some of you in this room should join a church maybe even this one, for the sake of being committed to the passionate pursuit of God's presence in your life and in the world that we live in, to have God's presence in the earth. That would be a helpful application for you, is join a church somewhere where you can be committed and encourage one another to fight sin in your life so that there would be no sin in the camp of the church, and so therefore we could protect and preserve God's presence. Some of us should probably consider just whether or not we want God's Spirit in our lives at all. And if you understand that this is a big part of what it means to be a Christian, is to have God's presence live and dwell in you. This is the hope of glory, Paul says, that Christ is in you through God's Holy Spirit. If you think right now that Christianity is just about obeying a bunch of commands and making sure you do all the right rules, And it has no internal ramifications for how you live your life from the inside out, that God comes and dwells in you, then you're confused right now about what it means to be a Christian. So that's all part one. Part two, I wanted to get over briefly, so if you're thinking, wow, we're going to be here for two more hours, that's not the plan. My main hope this morning was to declare to you that from part one, The presence of God can be had in the same way that David passionately pursued and made a vow, we too want to make a commitment to one another to passionately pursue God's holy presence, not through an ark, but through the ultimate ark, Jesus Christ, through his cross and his blood shed for us. It's why we exist as a church together. So the parallel phrases in the second half take the hopes and the dreams of David and God's people, and they come true through the faithful promise-keeping of God in the second half of this psalm. So let's just look at that real quick and conclude. Verses 11 through 18. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Compare that to verse 2, how David swore an oath to the Lord. Well, the Lord swore an oath to David. And what was that oath? And this is a paraphrase, I believe, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we read from 6. We talked about the Ark of the Covenant coming in to the temple area in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 6, 
You get chapter 7 in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God makes this promise. Because David says, I want to I build a house. I want to build a big house for this new ark that came into Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to build you a home, a dynasty, one of the sons of your body. This is verse 11 of our psalm. I will set on your throne, and if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, right after David gets the ark into Jerusalem, he says, I want to build a place for it to stay and be protected and have a home for God's ark. And it was a wonderful desire, but God said, no, you are a man of too much bloodshed and war, and this is a house of peace, and so your son Solomon, whose name means peace, will be the one who makes this house. So that's the story of Israel in a short nutshell. But what God does promise David is a little Hebrew play on words. He says, I am going to give you the opportunity to build a house, but it's not a temple for my presence in the ark. It's going to be a dynasty, a kingdom, and your sons through your family line, they are going to have the opportunity to sit on the throne, not just for a short time, but forever. And then you see that parallel from David's oath to God's oath, Continue in the next phrase in verses 13 and 14 where you see that earlier in our psalm, verses 6 and 7, they're saying we want to go to the dwelling place of God and worship at His footstool. And God says, look, the Lord has chosen Zion as its desired place for its dwelling. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Then in verses 15 and 16, you see the parallel of their prayer and they say, O rise, O Lord, go to your resting place you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. See that prayer being repeated in God's words to them in verses 15 and 16? I will give you great blessing. I'm going to abundantly bless your provisions. I will satisfy the poor with bread and then the priests will be clothed with salvation. Same exact phrase from earlier in the psalm. The saints will shout for joy. What's happening here is God's not only kind of counteracting the vow that David made, I want to build a house. I want to be passionate about God's presence. It says, well, I'm going to be passionate about making your family line have a throne that lasts forever. And so I'm choosing Jerusalem to be that place, and I'm going to bless you greatly, and the priests will clothe with salvation and the saints with joy. The very prayers that were asked of in the earlier part of the psalm are answered here in God's words back to them. And then lastly, verses 17 and 18 or the direct response to the middle part of our psalm. Verse 10, For the sake of your servant David, don't turn your face away from the anointed one. And what does he say? Verse 17, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Verse 10 is a prayer to say, Look, please, for the sake of Israel and for David and our our whole nation, don't forget us, don't Leave us, don't forsake us. He says, I will not. I will make David a horn, which is the sign of strength. So Israel and David will be strong. They will be a light. I'll provide a lamp for them. And the enemies will be clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Part two is all about the promised king for God's people. If part one was all about a passionate commitment To the presence of God, part two is about God's promise of a king for his people. 
But the declarative truth I want to declare to you that I think is extremely important for how you live your life and the way you think about God, the Bible, and the world. There is a king from the family line of David who has a horn of strength, who is the anointed one of God. His enemies will be clothed with shame and his crown will shine and this king is Jesus Christ. All the words that you've just read here in Psalm 132 are going to be fulfilled fully and finally in the coming of Jesus, but in a way that you would have never expected. Where are kings normally born? Palaces. Our king was born in a manger. Kings normally ride on the warrior's horse, but he comes riding on a donkey, a colt. Kings normally rule with their sword and their power. When you see here in verse 17 that I will make a horn to sprout for David, that's like the the strength of his army and the soldiers, and they're going to be able to take out all their enemies, as it explains in the next verse, in verse 18. All the enemies will be put to shame. And Jesus did all of that, but in a way that you would have never expected, not with the sword and spear. In fact, Do you remember when Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane pulled out the sword and started cutting off that guy's ear and Jesus was like, what are you doing? Quit it. This is not the way my kingdom works. He picks the ear up off the ground, puts it back on the guy's face, and you're like, whoa, that's different. But that's not the point. The point is not that he's got magical power to heal a guy's ear. That's that's certainly godlike. The point is that Jesus doesn't grab the sword and say, yeah, let's fight him back. Instead, he lets the sword and the spear carry him to his death. Do you see that the horn of strength for the kingdom of God is not going to be with swords and spears, it's going to be with lives that are laid down, servants who die. Maybe the symbol that we should think of is Jesus kneeling down and washing the disciples' feet. See, the the horn of salvation comes through a bloody cross, The crown that shines is a crown of thorns on the head of Jesus Christ. And the enemies that are clothed with shame are only clothed with shame because they ripped off the clothes of Jesus and laid him naked on a cross to their shame. Do you see the upside downness of Jesus' kingdom? These words come true in the most unexpected ways when we read the whole story together. So I declare to you this morning that God's presence is near and can be found here on earth in the person of Jesus as you accept the Spirit of God into your heart and life to commune with Him in the church. But secondarily, I declare to you today that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. As you're in this election season and you're thinking about the next ruler that might rule over the land of America... America has never been around for forever. It comes and goes. It's just a nation. But there's one true king. His name is Jesus, and he rules not with an iron scepter that uses swords and spears to kill and conquer, but with love and grace and mercy and peace and joy, with laying down of lives and serving others. Friends, do you want to be a part of that kingdom? Does that resonate at all with your spirit within you? If so, that's because God's spirit is probably resting in you. That's the presence of God here on earth. When his citizens of the kingdom 
collectively gather themselves together in what might be called embassies, outposts of heaven. Here on earth is an outpost, an embassy. And that's what we've gathered here to do every week, is to declare the good news of that coming king, his conquering over all our enemies, and to get busy with his work until he comes. Let's do that and let's pray. Our Father, we want to give you thanks this morning for wonderful truths that we can declare week after week as we gather together. What mighty, wonderful, glorious things have just been spoken from your word. Thank you that your presence is not far off. That even though the highest of heavens cannot contain you, that you're everywhere all at the same time, your very special near presence comes down and comes very close to our own heart. Thank you, God, for the gift of the church, the new ark that's represented in the body of Christ, which is here on earth, your church. Thank you, God, for this gathering of believers, for their fight against sin, for their love for one another. Thank you, God, for victory over sin, that you're triumphing day by day, person by person, one step at a time, and bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you, God, for all that we have seen in our seeing through our little church here and all around the world, that your kingdom is much greater, bigger, stronger, more powerful, and in much surprising ways as we see lives laid down and servants serving and your kingdom purposes advancing. Help us to do this for the glory of your name. Amen. Our final two songs we're going to sing. Our first one will remain seated. So we're going to declare that all hail the power of Jesus' name. And then we'll sing crown him because he deserves to be crowned and glorified. As we sing this first song, we're going to remain seated as the Ushers are going to come forward. They're going to pass by a bread and cup, and we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus' blood, his death on a cross, is the means by which you and I can receive the presence of God in our lives. So here we all are. Do you know God's presence in you right now, in your life? The fight against sin, the desire to live the upside-down kingdom values, to lay down your life for others? If so, this bread and cup would be a meal that you could join us with, join in with us to take the bread and cup. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure that's for me, then just let the bread and cup pass by. We're all just going to remain seated. No one's going to like start pointing fingers and laughing at you. But I would ask you, what's keeping you from taking the bread and cup today? as being the first sign to say, I want the presence of God in my life. Now, it's not going to magically come through the cup or the bread. These are just external symbols. But the realness of God's Spirit could not be more clear. And there's all of these people around this room that could tell you, God is real, and He's in my life, and He's fighting against my sin. So, if maybe for the first time today you need to take the bread and cup and say, I want God's presence in me, then do so as an act of faith. And we'll sing this song together. Let's hold the bread and cup until the song's done.